Hello, Most Presidents podcast listeners. We just wanted to start this episode with a little bit of an announcement. It's nothing serious, but just something that we wanted to say regarding an episode that we recorded, but were not able to use. Now, there were many reasons why we couldn't use this recording, but there was something that we wanted to bring to all of your attention because, and look, we don't want to toot our own horn, although I guess the pun is intended in a, in a way somebody is tooting their own horn. I don't know, Kevin, I, w- I would say we're probably the humblest podcast out there. We're on the our, s- yeah, we're on our second episode and I, I know that that might be a bit of an oxymoron. Nobody's as humble as we are. Yeah, nobody's Nobody. humble as, yeah, nobody's humble as we are. Believe us. Believe me. But around the time in the last, our last recording of this second episode, which you're about to hear, when we were talking about the Greek shipping scandal, which you'll come to learn about, as well as the tax man, we heard this. I'm going to play it for you. Hopefully you can hear it well. British flag. And this also brought the great U.S. taxpayer into it because a lot of these goods were funded by U.S. taxpayer dollars. These were U.S. taxpayer dollars that were intended to help Britain. And now this wasn't the first, but many of some train whistles that took place while we were recording. And it could very well be that, Kevin, you live close to where some trains are, but my mind tends to go somewhere else. I'm thinking that there's somebody out there, whether it's the train conductor, the engineer, whoever toots the horn, or it could be some kid who's just concerned about Bobby Kennedy, who wants to be on this program. So instead of just completely scrapping that audio recording and not using it at all, I just wanted to make it clear, whoever tooted that horn, if you wanted to come on our podcast, if you wanted to talk about taxes, if you wanted to talk about the Greek shipping scandal, if you wanted to talk about Bobby Kennedy, if you just wanted to sit here and joke around with us, we would love to have you on. So just wanted to make that announcement, just wanted to make it clear that we're We're only in our second episode, but we already have people who want to be guests, and we welcome guests here. That was clearly the whistle of someone who's an expert on the Greek shipping scandal, so we really need someone like that on our show. We'd love to have you. Let's get on with our show. Good morning, class. For today's history lesson, we're going to talk about someone very important, the President of the United States of America. Now, I'm sure a lot of your parents have told you that maybe one day you'll grow up to be the President. I want to let you know right now that that is a lie. Not one of you in this class will ever be President. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Almost Presidents podcast. My name is Ryan. And I'm Kevin. And today we'll be diving into part two of a multi-part series on Bobby Kennedy's historic 1968 run for president. If you haven't checked out our first episode and want to start at the beginning of the story, feel free to put this episode on pause and come back to us once you've finished that one. But as for all the rest of you who are here for the next installment in our series, let's go ahead and get started. Last time we left off, we had Bobby who was facing tremendous disappointment at having missed out on the biggest challenge that his generation would face, which was serving in World War II. He just didn't get there in time. What wound up happening was he 
became a common sailor, and he sailed aboard a ship that was literally named after his war hero brother, Joseph P. Kennedy Jr., who had fallen in combat. He had seen his brother, Jack, become a war hero, publish, or had ghostwritten is more accurate, a memoir of his heroics. And here's RFK, who is just going to return to Harvard after really not having done much in the war. And at Harvard, he earns himself a bachelor's in political science. From Harvard, he goes on to attend the University of Virginia, where he studied law. And here's where we see a spark of what's going to become a Bobby who really champions civil rights. And this spark occurred when he had invited a Nobel Peace Prize winner named Ralph Bunch, who was a black man, to speak. And now, of course, we are talking about Virginia in the 50s. So segregation was still in full effect. But Bunch said that he would not speak in front of a segregated audience. He really held his ground pretty admirably on that. And so Bobby took it upon himself to use his prestige, his influence, as well as his rhetoric to talk to the student governing body and convince them that Bunch should be able to speak to a desegregated audience. His arguments were successful, and the event taking place on March 26, 1951, had Bunch speaking in front of a desegregated audience of 1,500 people, which I believe was more than the venue sat. There were people who were standing along the sides. I'm sure there were people who were standing outside trying to catch a word of what this Nobel Prize winner was saying. And it was this really great moment where we had black people and white people coming together, sharing a space, and they're not being violent as a result. So it's a really amazing moment that a young Bobby Kennedy was involved in. And so it can be argued that, of course, like we talked about last episode, Bobby Kennedy was a bit of an underdog. I could hear some of you wincing because he did come from the Kennedy family, right? He did come from a lot of wealth and privilege. But within the Kennedy family, he was not able to compete. He was not academically gifted. He was not physically gifted in any way. And he was always kind of that underdog. And so people have argued that it could be due in part because of this, that he took up the case of these African-American students and Ralph Bunch, of course, who would be unable to benefit from the knowledge being dispensed in a collective environment where race is mixed. And so this could have led him to make a stand when he saw injustice against someone of a different race and later on economic background. Uh, Kevin, I mean, maybe we can go back and forth about this. I tend to kind of push away from psychoanalyzing a guy like him. Um, if we're not looking at what he's actually saying, you know, if we're just thinking about what he's thinking, um, I, I don't know. What do you think? You can certainly go too far with like projecting your perspective of what someone is like onto them and like getting all Freudian and thinking too much about, you know, trauma and mothers and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with that. Yeah, I agree. And Bobby did love his mother and I don't, <laughs> that always makes me think of psycho. So maybe we'll yeah. just, maybe we'll just maybe take we a hard, uh, we'll take a hard right. Um, <laughs> and just talk about the fact that with a guy like RFK, no matter what psychoanalysis you're doing, the rationale behind his decision-making process is oftentimes a lot more complicated. And that's what this episode is going to be about, how we can have an RFK who stands up for Ralph Bunch, desegregates in 
event at UVA, as well as an RFK who can stand with a guy like McCarthy. And so this side of RFK that we're going to get into in this episode is the one that makes him appear attractive to modern day conservatives. This is the Bobby Kennedy who is tough on communism. This is the Bobby Kennedy who's tough on crime. And that's something that is going to follow him, of course, when he becomes attorney general. But a lot of this would have a negative impact on his legacy, as well as even before he was shot and tragically killed. Um, Later on in his political life, like during his campaign for president in 1968, not too much further down the road, this side of him seemed to get buried by his supporters. They didn't really want prospective voters to know that he had been involved with people who were tough on communism and the things that he kind of did to kind of bend and people argue even break the constitution. They, they would bury that. Whereas people who wanted to take Bobby Kennedy down so that their candidate would look better would take out their shovels and try and excavate this part. And we mentioned legacy just before, but Bobby Kennedy's legacy is very complicated and nuanced to this day because of these two things. So where this all starts is, of course, when Bobby Kennedy takes a job with Senator Joseph McCarthy. Now, to catch up people who may or may not have slept through their history class in high school, um, Senator Joseph McCarthy is the monomaniacal communist hunter, the Republican senator from Wisconsin, and the sort of leading agitator of the Red Scare. So as we all know, the tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union were flaring up in the late 40s and and early 50s as a result of major events like the arms race and the Korean War. And men like Senator McCarthy were seizing on this social climate of distrust and fear about the spread of communism in the U.S. And McCarthy goes on to use this to launch a nationwide communist witch hunt, as some people would go to call it. And this upended a lot of people's lives, destroyed a lot of people's livelihoods, ended a lot of careers in both politics and entertainment and other areas of life. Um, And one such uh, person who was affected by this uh, communist witch hunt is the playwright Arthur Miller. Again, if you slept through your high school classes, you may have not read The Crucible, but The Crucible is is the play that he writes about the Salem witch hunts, and it's all allegorical comparing to the the Red Scare and McCarthyism, which is sort of flaring up at the time. Similar to these witch hunts in early American history, many of McCarthy's opponents are going to strongly question his methods, viewing him as kind of setting aside the rules of decorum and and people's civil rights in order to pursue someone that he sees as an enemy. And that basically was anyone who fell under his scrutiny. A lot of typical McCarthy witch hunts were carried out on the Senate floor and contained shows of fear-mongering, demagogic oratory, and not a lot of solid evidence, unfortunately. So when he wasn't using his bully pulpit to antagonize and terrorize people, Joe McCarthy was a great friend of the Kennedys. He had been for some time, and he even dated some of the Kennedy girls and was often found visiting the Kennedy house. And A little fun fact, in JFK's 1952 Senate campaign, Joe McCarthy actually agreed not to campaign for Lodge, who was a fellow Republican, in order to help out the family, like because he was friends with them. 
And given the fact that McCarthy was such a prominent figure at the time, a public endorsement would have been huge and probably would have put JFK out of the race. So it was a pretty big deal that he decided not to campaign for Lodge at the time. I feel I feel terrible hearing you mention Arthur Miller. Uh, I I didn't sleep through my high school English class. Actually, it took me it took me two readings of that play to get it, um, but I, I still didn't get the larger historical tapestry that it fit into. But with that being said, one of my bookshelves in my apartment is uneven, and the Crucible may or may not be uh, leveling it out. So uh, that definitely made me feel a little bit uh, guilty. <laughs> But let's get back to this. So how does Bobby Kennedy fit into this? McCarthy is a friend of the family. So in January of 1953, Joe Sr., who's kind of our puppet master, remember the the Kennedy patriarch, he secures Bobby a job working on McCarthy's Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, where he will work as part of the, the legal team. He's a lawyer. And The investigation that RFK was put in charge of turns out to be a really big deal. It goes down in history as the Greek shipping scandal. And what this involved was U.S. allies such as Greece and Norway who were shipping goods that included strategic materials that were involved in war making to China to make a profit, which might not seem like that big of a deal, but the Korean War is going on. So they're basically looking to make a profit at the same time the Korean War is going on by selling to China, who is working with the North Koreans or supporting them. And so this is this is a huge scandal. We have goods here that are valued at upwards of $2 billion. Another key ally, England, is also implicated in the scandal because many of these ships involved in this trade flew the British flag as they were doing what they were doing. What also makes this a big deal to the immediate Joe Sixpack U.S. taxpayer on the ground is that his taxpayer dollars were intended to help Britain rebuild after the war effort and are instead being used to aid America's enemies for a payday. So RFK and his people, they looked into this and they drew up a report that wound up showing 162 foreign ships trading strategic materials were used to supply North Koreans in the first 3.5 months of 1953. They're killing their own people. I mean, it was a really big deal. I think oftentimes we think of McCarthy and, you know, justifiably so, as just these witch hunts where they're just going after people. And a lot of times it's unjustified. But this was one where even detractors of McCarthy jumped on the story after they heard what RFK and this subcommittee found out about this shipping scandal. So this was for sure one of the investigations under McCarthy that really bore legitimate fruit. So RFK is going to leave the committee in July 1953 due to his concerns over what direction the committee is heading in. He he sort of sees what's coming. And he's worried that the McCarthy committee is using too many baseless accusations too often against supposed communists in various government agencies. And he's making a lot of enemies. And this Bobby thinks this is going to come to ruin McCarthy. There was also a consensus among Democrats in the committee that McCarthy wasn't really giving them enough say. So this was also kind of a partisan decision. 
It also has to be acknowledged that probably a pretty significant contributor to Bobby's departure is just the fact that he had to be in the same room with McCarthy's chief aide, Roy Cohn, who Bobby just really loathed for a variety of reasons. Notably, he hated Cohn because Cohn was gay. Um, He was known to be a homosexual, and this is kind of one of the darker sides with Bobby, I guess, is that he was quite homophobic. And so he didn't like Roy Cohn for that reason. Bobby also thought that Cohn's investigations into communists lacked uh, real research and investigation, and they often just relied on vague theories, preconceived notions of the accused, and just underhanded tactics like bullying and berating people into confessing. At this point, it's worth noting, this is sort of like a sidetrack, like fun fact, You might not recognize the name Roy Cohn, but you probably know his, I guess you could say, mentee, um, and that is Donald Trump. So, you know, former President Donald Trump was a big follower, and and he was mentored by Roy Cohn. So we're not going to open that can of worms right now. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) sure. I mean, I'm definitely curious to see what they learn from each other. You know, or I guess what Cohn imparted to to Trump, you know, that he wound up yeah. using to be successful in politics. I would certainly be interested in reading about it. But yeah, like you said, I mean, we definitely don't want to don't want to, yeah. you know, get into that. Certainly not a box we want to open right now. So you can the the listener, you can make of that what you will. Now, Bobby does wind up returning to the subcommittee in January of the following year, nineteen fifty four, after he does some work for former President Herbert Hoover that he finds terribly boring. And this time he is in the role uh, as Democratic Minority Counsel. And this is after McCarthy is strongly armed into giving up sole responsibility for hiring counsel. And senior Democrat John McClellan winds up being the guy who hires Bobby. Roy Cohn claims that Bobby only returns to personally destroy him, but the listener can determine whether they think that's uh, credible. Yeah, I mean, you could definitely see in a lot of the recordings that they certainly traded a lot of barbs. You could see Bobby's face certainly taking pleasure at moments where Cone was really going down. Either way, what this is all building towards is certainly a political career just ending in a supernova. Sure, Cone definitely went down with the ship, but who we're really talking about here is McCarthy. And what we're referring to is the 1954 Army McCarthy hearings. These hearings were a huge deal because they were broadcast on national television, which was still certainly something of a novelty at that time. And the charge that McCarthy was charging the army with was being soft on communism. And, you know, that word being soft, you know, might not seem like it's a big deal today. But back then, at the height of the Red Scare, if our own army is being soft on communism, that is a huge accusation. And McCarthy really thrived on making those huge accusations and stirring up fear among Americans. But where this started was was actually somewhere pretty small. This man named Irving Perez, who was actually an army dentist, was attacked by McCarthy because he refused to fill out one of the loyalty forms where you would disclose whether or not you were a member of any sort of subversive organization. So, of course, communism was right up in there. He refused to fill it out because... He said, I don't have to, you know, it's my fifth amendment right to not disclose anything that could potentially incriminate me. And McCarthy said, well, bingo. So if you're using your fifth amendment, right, because it might incriminate you, 
you might as well have just incriminated yourself. And unfortunately, whether or not he learned it here or you know picked it up and refined it later, this is a tactic that we'll see Bobby employ on organized crime when he's with the McClellan Committee, and we're actually going to talk about that in this episode. But going back to Perez, the dentist, he was later promoted in spite of his refusal to fill out the form. And this opened up a whole Pandora's box because now McCarthy went after not just Perez, but all these members of the military who were involved in promoting him, saying that they were all being soft on communism. And this was where McCarthy was boxing above his weight class, getting a little too confident of his abilities. He just didn't have the clout to take on the entire U.S. Army. He didn't. And so the fact that the Army McCarthy hearings were broadcast on national television also didn't help him because now not only was it the Army kind of fighting back, but it was the American people in their living rooms seeing that this guy who seemed to be this anti-communist crusader was actually kind of a ruthless bully. And a lot of the ways he would go after people were baseless. A lot of his claims were baseless. He was just not an appealing figure for the American public to see. And so these broadcasts, it can be be argued um, in some ways turned the tide of the hearings so that it was no longer the army on trial, but McCarthy and his henchmen, such as Cohn, on trial. So McCarthy charges the army with something. The army, in response, charges McCarthy with something. They accuse him of seeking to use his influence to secure preferential treatment for one of his buddies, one of the subcommittee staffers named David Shine. David Shine was a right-hand man to Roy Cohn. He was drafted into the army. And McCarthy and and Cohn, they really just got it into themselves. They wanted him to have a much cushier experience in the army than the average draftee. And that gave the army some leverage and it drew the American public just up a wall that he was just going to get an easier treatment just because he knew a senator who was powerful. And so the trial ensues. McCarthy begins to self-destruct before Congress and as well as a large part of America. And so McCarthy, not McCarthy, um, RFK is, is really kind of sweeping his brow thinking that, you know, it's a good thing that he is on the other side of this. Um, He's sitting over there with the minority Democrats who had already, they they had already turned against McCarthy, but soon it was even Eisenhower Republicans that were determined to make a stand against McCarthy. So that kind of shows that it was a big deal. I mean, it's not surprising to see Democrats against Republicans or Republicans against Democrats, but to see Republicans looking at one of their own and saying, look, enough is enough is, is a pretty huge deal. So finally, on December 2nd, 1954, there is a 67 to 22 vote in the Senate to censure Senator McCarthy. And what this means is that he stays in office and keeps his post in the subcommittee until the new Congress is inaugurated, at which point John McLennan, the Democratic senator, replaces him. And soon after, in 1957, so a few years later, McCarthy dies. Until that time, Bobby Kennedy remains his friend. And at a banquet in 1955, just sort of to illustrate how this friendship worked, when Eddie Murrow, who was a prolific McCarthy detractor, took the stage to speak, Bobby publicly and and made a show of leaving the room. 
to sort of show his distaste for this guy. On the day of the funeral, Bobby closes his office, sends his staff home so that he can attend the funeral. And despite who he was and who he would become and how his views would change, Bobby Kennedy does believe in his heart that Joe McCarthy was a good man, despite what pretty much everyone else comes to believe about him. (laughs) With the McCarthy days behind him, the next era of Bobby Kennedy's short life can be called that, an era, because the crusade he would wage against the dredges of society, the organized criminal factions of America, would follow him for most of his short life. So before we jump into this part of Bobby's career where he tackles organized crime, it's worth noting that at the start of this time period, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, who we all know is a very honest person, denies that organized crime even exists. Now, if this is the guy that you're going to trust, this is going to be a difficult series for you. We're going to have some pretty tough revelations that will maybe rock your world a little bit. So in 1957, there is a special bipartisan committee formed, and Bobby's old friend, Senator John McClellan, is at the helm. It's called the Select Committee on Improper Activities in the Labor or Management Field. But instead of referring to that all the time, we're going to refer to it in the way that most people at the time referred to it as, which was the Rackets Committee. The committee is formed in response to evidence indicating that racketeering was taking place within big labor, specifically large labor unions such as the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, which might sound familiar for those of you who are cinephiles. And within the Rackets Committee, RFK serves as chief counsel, and it's in this position where he's really going to find his stride as a cutthroat prosecutor. In conducting his investigations, Bobby was looking for a link between labor and organized crime. And in this search, he winds up finding an enormous amount of wealth in union pension funds, which makes them an ideal target for organized crime, potentially. The Teamsters Union was 1.3 million men strong, and they had a $250 million pension fund. So Bobby goes after the Teamsters through this select committee, and it's here that he's going to find a powerful enemy, because the Teamsters hold an enormous amount of sway over the nation's truckers who transport essential products all over the country. I mean, just look at the size of the United States. Trucking is an enormously important part of our everyday lives, and it was still an enormous part of everyone's lives at the time. That's how you get pretty much all of the products that you consume. The saying at the time from the Teamsters was, if you got it, a truck driver brought it to you. And that really holds true. And By going after the Teamsters, Bobby opens himself up to, or really, rather, he opens up the nation to the possible threat of a nationwide trucking strike, which would shut down really the entire nation because of how dependent we were on trucking. And the Teamsters and the leadership of the Teamsters were powerful men who could possibly make this happen. And just a quick aside, I don't know if this would hold up or not, but it just came into my mind. I'm wondering if we can almost compare this to like Amazon. You know, if you got it, Amazon brought it to you, you know, something like that to kind of really make people understand the significance of what it was like to kind of poke the bear when it came to the Teamsters. But yeah, like you were saying, as far as how powerful the Teamsters were, one of the most powerful men within the Teamsters was Jimmy Hoffa. And he quickly emerged as the Joker to Bobby's Batman. The rivalry and the bitterness and the legal battles that took place between these men would follow them for 
the majority of the duration of their lives, which were actually both cut short by assassins. Just to get it out of the way, because it was a phenomenal, phenomenal movie, Hoffa was played by Al Pacino in Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Kevin, you haven't seen The Irishman. What do you have to say for yourself? I don't know. I feel like I'm not qualified to even be doing this podcast. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly why I made sure that I did this part. But yeah, you have got to check out The Irishman. The book is even better for all of you folks who have only seen the movie. But that will definitely be uh, a watch. We'll have to check that out. And anything by Scorsese, really. Yeah, I mean, because he he brings like the bring the big band into it, so it's got the music and everything. Yeah. But uh, yeah, at at risk of letting it glorify, you know, people like Jimmy Hoffa too much. Let's let's talk about Jimmy Hoffa and who he really was. Hoffa was a powerful labor leader with the Teamsters, who was notoriously corrupt, highly highly corrupt, with all sorts of connections to organized crime. And these were connections that would get the better of him and lead to his sudden demise when he just disappeared and you know nobody knew where he wound up for a long time. Of course, he had been killed. But Jimmy Hoffa started out as a low-wage laborer who worked his way up. One of the more famous anecdotes from his early days was a strike. They became known as the Strawberry Boys, and they had problems with I think the way that they were being paid, the labor conditions, whatever it was. And their job was to unload trucks that were full of strawberries so that they could be refrigerated and sold at a supermarket or whatever. And so a young Hoffa organized the laborers that he was working with, his coworkers, and chose the moment that these trucks came full of strawberries and were depending on him and his buddies to unload them so that they wouldn't go bad. He chose that exact moment to give his demands to the bosses and they met the demands. And from then on, Hoffa was just known as a really tough guy who would stand up for labor. He was involved in all kinds of strikes, had all kinds of arrests going against him because he would just not back down. And so the Teamsters loved him because they felt that he stuck up for them. He was tough. He was one of them. And he was a really good speaker. They liked the way that he gave speeches. He wound up being an organizer of a Detroit Teamsters Local 299, but of course that wouldn't be the end of his ascendancy towards the top of the chain of command when it came to the Teamsters. And in order to help him get to the top, he enlisted the help of mobsters as well as local muscle, and they used violence, intimidation, extortion as a means to achieve union goals. A real nice way to get your head around how Hoffa worked with organized crime and hitmen was the first words that he said to Frank Sheeran, who of course is the main character of the Irishman. He is just mob muscle hitman. And first words that Frank Sheeran heard when Hoffa was on the phone with him was, I heard you paint houses. And listeners, I I'll, I'll let you use your imaginations as to as to what that means. I heard you paint houses. So RFK does some digging while working for the subcommittee into the Teamsters, and he comes to Senator John McClellan with proof of embezzlement from the Teamsters president, Dave Beck. He found that $370,000 were embezzled from Teamsters membership funds to fund Beck's lavish lifestyle. Beck is brought to trial, and he's proven guilty and sent to prison for larceny and tax evasion. And during this trial, 
Beck invokes the Fifth, Fifth Amendment a staggering once a minute per on, on average. And his conviction is due in part to damning information about Beck leaked by Hoffa in hopes that Bobby would use it to get the Teamsters president out of the picture. So it was kind of orchestrated. And to give you a sense of, of what the subcommittee thought about this and what their direction was, McClellan says about the subject that Beck, quote, carried out with greedy shamelessness a campaign to enrich himself from the Union Treasury and so neglected his duties that when he left office in disgrace, there were thugs and thieves in positions of power. And RFK, in referring to the flaws in federal law regulating unions, said that these, quote, will return to plague us with new Dave Becks unless we find basic solutions, unquote. So Dave Beck, I wouldn't exactly describe him as a case closed shut, but they were able to get him and they were able to get him pretty good. Hoffa proved to be a bit more of a slippery snake and it would really haunt RFK that he was never able to get him as as often and as easily as he would have liked. He did wind up getting him, but in the meantime, Hoffa, which is a bit why I compare him to the Joker, but I, I don't really think that's entirely fair. But he he liked to think he could mess with RFK. Joker would always mess with Batman. Like, that's kind of what he would do. So something that Hoffa would do, I mean, he really didn't think too highly of RFK. He thought he was a spoiled kid. He really didn't take him seriously. I, I think when he referred to him in, pi- in, 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 in uh, private, he really didn't like to, you know, use his name. But he would always say kind of Bobby, like almost in a you know, derogatory way, just sing it like he was joking about him. But a famous anecdote that I, I can't help but think is funny is that RFK was a workhorse, just a notoriously hard worker, and he would expect that his staff around him would all do the same. And so whenever he would drive home at night, and, you know, based on what I just said, you would assume that it would be already pretty late. If he would see the lights on in Jimmy Hoffa's office, he'd turn around, return to his office and get back to work. And so it's not long before that story gets around to Hoffa. And so he starts leaving the lights on in his office when he locks up for the night. So Bobby winds up just really burning the candle at both ends and Jimmy Hoffa winds up getting more sleep. I do wonder though if that strategy didn't go against Hoffa because it did put Bobby at his desk for much longer with that just Kennedy determination that he had. But who's to say? Another funny anecdote is that when Bobby would be in court with Hoffa and he'd be focused on asking him a question, and he'd be really concentrating on it, Hoffa would wink at him, which would cause Bobby to become distracted. And it got to a point where it was so bad that he would have to ask the judge to get Hoffa to stop winking at him. And that just gives you kind of a preview there, that last anecdote of the way that Hoffa treats the justice system. He really doesn't take it very seriously. He thinks he can toy with it and just get out of whatever he's done. With that being said, though, Batman, or RFK, was not to be toyed with also. Hoffa wound up developing a scheme where he had this guy, John Cy Chiesty, who he was determined to put on RFK's payroll so that he could get some intel on what's going on in the Rackets Committee. He sent this guy to RFK to try and get a job on the Rackets Committee, and RFK wound up turning him when John Sidechisty kind of let him know what was going on. So now he had a double agent who could report on what was going on in Hoffa's group, and 
I imagine presumably say false things about you know what RFK was doing. This also turned into something bigger, which was where they finally got Hoffa in handcuffs. They used Chiesti to organize a sting. They had him show up to a public meeting with documents from the Rackets Committee. And in exchange for those documents, Hoffa handed him a $2,000 bribe, which caused him to immediately get arrested. People rushed out, put him in handcuffs, and charged him with federal bribery and conspiracy. And so you can believe that was a glorious day at the courthouse when RFK, as well as his wife, Ethel, who really liked to relish in her husband's triumphs, if that's the right word. But that that didn't stop there being a silent stare down from Hoffa at RFK. Apparently it was a three minute silent stare down. So if you kind of picture someone doing that to you, and I can only imagine the hatred in Hoffa's eyes. And then of course, what else would happen except an argument over who could do more push-ups. So Kevin, I'm going to ask you first, RFK versus Hoffa, who can do more push-ups? I think Hoffa wins because I think he uh, has somebody break RFK's arms the day before. That's a good point. That's a good point. I wonder how Scorsese would film that. Um, yeah, I, I do right. think RFK still tries, though. Yeah, yeah. Kind of I mean, like some some Rock Lee shit, if anybody's familiar with uh, Naruto. That, that's a great analogy. But yeah, no, I mean, even just some realistic stuff. I'm thinking of the kid who jumped in water over his head to try and swim with his older brothers when he couldn't swim. The guy who broke yeah. his leg in football and tried to get out of the next play. So I definitely agree with that. Um yeah, I, I mean, even if it was fair, I'm, 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 I'm thinking because I don't know. You don't hear a lot about like personal trainers hanging out at like, you know, Hyannisport or anything with the Kennedys. I mean, you know, this is. I mean, Hoffa's a guy who got beaten up by Billy Clubs. I mean, you know, he's a tough, mean dude. And I don't know how RFK's that. Equ- a, RFK's a princess. Yeah. Yeah, and like I don't know how that equates to doing one of the staples of the presidential fitness test that some of you might have had to take in elementary school, which is doing a push up. But this I is think, the original presidential fitness test. Yeah, not the almost <laughs> presidential fitness test. Um, yeah. I, th- I think I think Hoffa would beat him. But <laughs> either way, um, Hoffa was brought to trial, and this was a big deal because this was a time where America, their public opinion generally thought that labor couldn't be corrupt, and this was being shown to be not true. So when Hoffa was put to trial, RFK and his team – certainly had their strategy, but he had his. And what he did is he hired an elite defense lawyer who selected a jury that was two-thirds black. So their big thing here is they were going to pull the race card. So a jury that is two-thirds black, they also brought on a black lawyer, and then they proceeded to deliver propaganda about this black lawyer's accomplishments to the jury to sway their opinion. And then right in the middle of the trial, legendary boxer, I believe it's former heavyweight champion of the world, uh, Joe Lewis, who is black, if, if, if you didn't know. Um, he was brought in to chum it up with Hoffa. So they really used race as their weapon. And this caused the jury to vote to acquit Jimmy Hoffa. And so this was a huge, huge boon for Hoffa and just devastating for Bobby. Uh, the Kennedys loved to use the press before going into trial. Bobby boasted to them that if Hoffa didn't end up getting convicted, he'd jump off the Capitol. And of course, when Hoffa got acquitted, he couldn't not respond to that. So he wrote RFK a note that said, jump. And 
this banter, you know, it's Hoffa avoided a 13 year prison sentence. Like this wasn't a small thing, but he still wanted to get under RFK's skin. And in repeated trials, he would just do something similar. Hoffa, he would just make a complete mockery of the justice system. There were trials where he blamed his failed memory for his inability to answer 111 of the questions put to him. A common way he would phrase it is, quote, to the best of my recollection, I must recall on my memory, I cannot remember. RFK accused Hoffa of creating fake unions or paper unions that had no members but had voting rights. And this is something that Hoffa used or was accused to have used to exert power in New York City. In response to Hoffa's supposed amnesia, RFK was known to have said, it is beyond comprehension that you can't remember this. You've had the worst case of amnesia the last two days I have ever heard of. Hoffa was put on trial for calling off a Teamster strike in Detroit to agree to terms with the company that was willing to grease his palms. This cost jobs of the original strikers. And in order to not get caught for this very crooked practice, he did the business in his wife's maiden name in order to shield himself. So it's really sad because you see a lot of these pictures of Hoffa speaking in front of Teamsters, posing with all these Teamsters, and they think he represents their best interests. But really, he's just using their pension fund and using them as an open check. So for obvious reasons, many of the witnesses in this trial or in these trials are going to invoke their Fifth Amendment rights, some of them on legitimate grounds, legally speaking, with fears that they would be incriminated, and others on orders from Jimmy Hoffa in fear that he might be incriminated or someone around him. So instead of letting this hijack the Rackets Committee's success, Bobby comes up with a bit of a strategy that he's going to use to turn all this invoking of the Fifth Amendment against the witnesses by deliberately picking witnesses who he knows are going to use the Fifth Amendment a lot, and then he makes them use it and insinuates that this is evidence of their guilt. He also uses this as a means to sort of bully and humiliate his his uh, witnesses. So one example of this is Chicago mob boss Sam Giancana, who laughs while he recites the Fifth Amendment, and RFK says, I thought only girls giggled, Mr. Giancana, which, you know, is a weird thing to say in a courtroom. But I, I kind of love that. It's, but it's not, yeah. obviously, it's not like you shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to give you sort of a typical example here. We're not exactly voice actors. I'm not going to try to impersonate and bring out my bad fake Boston accent to try to impersonate RFK. But we're going to give you a sense of how this works by kind of like doing a little back and forth with a conversation between RFK and Joey Glimco, who was a corrupt Teamsters local president and a past associate of Al Capone, who was being accused of murder. I guess I'll be RFK here. RFK says, you can have a lot of tough people call up witnesses, poor businessmen, poor members of the union who can't afford to protect themselves and have them intimidate these people. But you can't come before this committee and answer any questions, can you, Mr. Glimco? I respectfully decline to answer, because I honestly believe my answer might tend to incriminate me. You haven't got the guts to do that, have you, Mr. Glimco? I respectfully decline to answer, because I honestly believe my answer might tend to incriminate me. And this is McClellan speaking now. Morally, you are kind of yellow inside, are you not? 
I respectfully decline to answer because I honestly believe my answer might tend to incriminate me. And this is the way that RFK ridicules and bullies ranking mob members in court publicly while he's prosecuting them. We can sort of run through this and we can kind of do the like whole like, oh, he totally owns this guy, like that type of thing. But keep in mind, these were like gangsters. These guys were murderers. These guys were the people who make people disappear. <laughs> this is the type of guy who makes you sleep with the fishes, as, as they say. And so this, this definitely takes a lot of balls, is, is, is what I'm saying. And it leads to threats against him and his family, including his children. And this was such a staggering thing for him to do that when JFK was assassinated in 1963, there was a fear in his mind at the time that his work in the rackets committee as and, and as attorney general going after organized crime was what led to his brother being killed. And this is something that a lot of people still believe today. It's like a prominent conspiracy theory that JFK was possibly assassinated by the mob. And we're not like weighing in on whether or not that's true, but just, just to illustrate that the, the work that he was carrying out here was quite dangerous and ballsy. That's right. And RFK didn't only go after the Teamsters, but the Teamsters is one of the more prolific ones. It is one of the ones that got in the news a lot and really helped him make a name for himself. He worked for 207 days of hearings for these Teamsters, and that doesn't include the the behind-the-scenes work that went into preparing for those hearings, like interviewing potential witnesses exhaustively. And, you know, it it, it surely was exhausting work. I, I don't think anybody can deny that it had to be frustrating when it felt like little ground was being gained when you have over 300 witnesses who were using their Fifth Amendment right to get out of any tough questioning. And... Of course, this was part of the strategy to find people who would use that Fifth Amendment to try and prove a point. But you also have to keep in mind that they were going up against guys who have been accused of crimes such as murder, blinding someone with acid that literally happened, hanging people from meat hooks, violence, intimidation, extortion, embezzling on a massive scale. And making big labor out to be a nest of, to quote directly from the man himself, RFK, quote, convicted killers, robbers, extortionists, perjurers, blackmailers, safe crackers, dope peddlers, white slavers, and sodomists. Now, that that last one is a little bit problematic, but we'll move on. The thing is here, though, and this is where we go back to what I said at the beginning about how there are certain parts of RFK's legacy that are being excavated to show the man in a different light than the, just this gleaming, progressive, democratic, civil rights champion. These are those parts. And when it comes to RFK and the way that he composed himself in those courtrooms, many lawyers and constitutional scholars have argued that letting the short-term impact of something impact the long term can be a dangerous game. More specifically, we're talking about setting this trend of someone invoking their Fifth Amendment right as being an admission of their guilt. This is something where, and I'm no lawyer, you know, Kevin, you're not a lawyer either, 
unless you are and you're hiding it from me. This could be something that could tip the scales of our court system from you're innocent until proven guilty to you're guilty until proven innocent. And so it's in this way that Bobby Kennedy's tough on crime persona, which doesn't end in this episode, goes on when he's attorney general. But specifically, we're talking about the one he developed during his days working for the Rackets Committee could be viewed potentially by law and order Nixonians as possibly a good thing or in the opposite by criminal justice reform minded people as a bad thing and a potential blemish on RFK's legacy. Yeah, because obviously there is a reason why we have a Fifth Amendment. You're not supposed to just assume that someone's guilty because they choose to take it. But, you know, on the flip side, the this was being abused in that particular case. So, you know, it sets bad precedent, but it's definitely it's it's definitely like understandable why that might be appealing to people and why and it's certainly understandable why Bobby did it. But anyways, this confrontation with Hoffa is going to bring Bobby a lot of fame through the newspaper and the popular media and the televised trials that a lot of Americans view themselves. Bobby knew how to manipulate the press. He probably learned this from his father and he leaks choice morsels of information and then holds the press accountable to run by him with whatever they plan to print. So he can kind of sculpt the story in whatever way he wants. After his time working for McCarthy and then McClellan in this newer committee, Bobby starts to gain a pretty big reputation for himself, more so than just his family name. He's no longer just the, the bucktooth little brother of the Kennedy family. And so while working for the Rackets Committee, RFK acquires one of the largest staffs on Capitol Hill. And he really starts to, at this point, outshine JFK. By the end of this whole process, there are 300 days of hearings, 1,500 witnesses, and 20,000 pages of testimony. And the investigations lead to a very significant bill being passed, which ensures fair and secret elections in America's unions. And so he, this doesn't just make a splash in the printed news, but also on the emerging media of the television. And it demonstrates to really everyone that there is something to Bobby Kennedy beyond just being his father's son. After all of this, Bobby resigns from the committee in September 1959, so he can go on to work managing his brother's 1960 presidential campaign. And in the next episode of the Almost Presidents podcast, that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to take a deep dive into that campaign and how the start of the 60s was going to play out. And of course, what that looked like for a young, almost president, Robert F. Kennedy. Before you head out, feel free to subscribe and rate us. Leave a friendly comment on the way out. It really helps the podcast when you do. If you enjoy what we're doing, you can find our Twitter or Instagram in the description below. We'll keep you updated about the show, and we'll also fill your feed with plenty of good old-fashioned memes. You can write into the show. Our Gmail is thealmostpresidentspodcast at gmail.com, which you can also find in the description. All right, folks, so before we get off the mics, here are our recommendations for this episode. Kevin, do you want to start us out? Yeah, so uh, this time around I'm reading Crashed by Adam Tooze, uh, which is a, a really like prominent 
uh, covering of like the 2008 financial crisis and all the subsequent politics that followed and all of the subsequent crises that followed. So really, really good book. I'm, I'm only part of the way through it. This is one that I tried to start on audiobook. Do not recommend it on audiobook. It's very dense and there's a lot of graphs and figures that you need to look at. But fantastic book. If you want to understand the current moment, I think this is absolutely an essential read. I was reading this as the Ukraine crisis was gearing up and it was talking about all of the like politics around Putin and the annexation of like Georgia or Crimea and like all that stuff. Like it, it is really like so informative of our current moment. So much of what is going on currently is still impacted by what happened in 2008. And so it starts, you know, mid 2000s, early 2000s, and it goes all the way up until like the election of Trump and Brexit and all that good stuff. So really highly recommend this one. Excellent book. That's interesting. Is this your first foray into reading about like financial crises and economy and stuff like that? Because that's not really anything I've ever read about, but uh, you're, you're kind of making me want to. It sounds interesting. Yeah, I, I have read books about like the 2008 financial crisis before. Uh, this personally, I would say is the best one that I've read. Okay. Um, but I, I, yeah, I haven't like forayed very deeply into like the finance stuff, but I definitely am trying to like explore like economics a little more. It's just something I've been really interested in lately. So um, this is kind of part of that. It's like a great, I mean, Adam Tews is an economic historian and that really is what he does very well. Um, he covers, you know, this, this period of time super well. Nice. And just to acknowledge it, um, we are just going to leave that train whistle in. You heard the disclaimer at the beginning of the episode, but sometimes listeners, you just you just got to get beat by the train. Although maybe in this case, the train was just agreeing with you again, um, as it agreed with us before about the Greek shipping scandal. But that's cool. Uh, so what I've been reading, I think I'm only a couple hours into it. This is another one that I'm listening to during my commute as well as during my lunch hour or sorry, lunch half hour. Uh, I finally got to reading that book, I'll Be Alone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. And it's, it's a book about the Golden State Killer. And it's horrifying. Um, this, is, this is usually not something that I read. Uh, my girlfriend's very into law and order, true crime, all that stuff. You know, she could watch that for days. But to me, it's just like really disturbing. And I, I have, a, in, gen, in general, like a pessimistic worldview. So like reading about these people that just are evil and just, sick like the golden state killer not something you usually do but with that being said it's it's really good um you have to get used to her kind of because she was like a major like crime blog writer she actually passed in 2017 i think before they even found the true identity of the golden state killer but she was the one who branded him wrote all about him kept up with the old detectives on the case in like the 60s and 70s she really like makes it read like one of those crime thrillers that i'm not really (laughs) A big fan of because they just seem so a dime a dozen right but once you get used to that and realize that she's got all the facts she really knows what she's doing like she knows things down to the minute like she's really immersed in all the evidence she can almost take that liberty if that's how she wants to present it you know in my view yeah. i'd rather just get the facts but the way she kind of spins it makes it pretty terrifying especially because the golden state killer didn't just attack women you know, I think as guys, we kind of walk around with a little bit of privilege. Like we don't need to be constantly yeah, like afraid of like getting attacked when you're going for a jog alone or walking down a street or yeah. going on a hike, you know, the way that 
girls unfortunately still do in this country, but he would attack couples. So That's like that sick. adds a whole new element. Like obviously yeah. I, I um, care about like women getting sexually harassed and raped. Yeah. Um, but I just can't relate to that feeling of being preyed upon. But this guy makes you as a guy able to able relate to, to, that. to feel that. Yeah. Because he would just do the most fucked up things. Like he would always rape the woman, but he would tie up the guy. And they thought he had like a military background because he would do this thing. This is in the chapter that I just read where he would stack up plates on the guy's back and said, if I hear these plates fall, I'm going to kill her. And then I'm going to come in and I'm going to kill you. Jesus. So really fucked up stuff. Really ending on a high note here. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. I mean, I'll economic just... depression and serial killers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hopefully episode three is going to be really cheerful for you guys. Um, just so you know, it's probably not because there's a lot of freaking turmoil in the 50s and 60s. But um, I'll, I'll leave you with one last thing, listeners, if this is something that kind of gets you into this book, if you haven't heard of it. Um, this guy was so fucked up that I think almost three decades after he committed a crime, he called up one of the kids whose parents he attacked. And he didn't, he, I don't think he killed the parents or and obviously he let the kid live called the kid who's now an adult and said, remember that time I came and played with your parents? Like most sick, sick shit you will read. So if you're into that, I would definitely recommend this. And that's a wrap for episode two of the almost president's podcast. Kevin, send these people out. And don't forget you're beautiful. You're smart. You're amazing. You have what it takes to do anything you put your mind to. Except Except be be the the president. president.